Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 97th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Fong Long. Fong is the founder of Just Wealth, an independent RA specifically focused on working with younger clients in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who are still in the wealth building phase of their careers and with whom Fong meets entirely virtually using video conferencing tools, even though most of her clients are actually in the Boston area where she's located as well. What's unique about Fong, though, is not just her virtual practice, but that she comes from a background of doing financial coaching and counseling. And as a result, more than half of her practice is working with clients who are below the median household income in Massachusetts, about $75,000 a year, for whom she charges an ongoing monthly retainer fee of 1.5% of their monthly income. In this episode, we talk in depth about what it's like doing financial planning for lower and middle income families, why they really are willing to pay for financial planning advice despite being of limited means, how the focus typically is not actually on budgeting and household cash flow planning, but on building up their balance sheet instead, and why until those clients build up their personal balance sheet, it's necessary to understand the community balance sheet of local programs and resources to help. We also talk about the progression from financial education to financial coaching to financial counseling to financial planning. The differences in each of those terms, not just in regards to the income or affluence the client's being served, but the mindset of the educator or coach or counselor or advisor working with the client, and the appeal for someone with a financial coaching background like Fong to come into the financial planning world in the first place. And be certain to listen to the end where Fong talks about the challenging ways that stereotypes about race and low-income individuals can become blocking points to giving them effective advice, how many of the financial challenges of working with people of color in her community can be traced back to institutional and government policies from decades ago that still have lasting effects in the compounding of income and wealth inequality, which in turn may be both limiting the reach of financial planning to minority communities and our ability as a profession to attract people of color to become financial planners in the first place. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Fong Long. Welcome, Fong Long, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm, I'm looking forward to this episode because you... You come to the podcast and this discussion, I think, from a very different perspective than a lot of other advisors. You know, we we kind of have, we try to have a range of people on the podcast, different business models, different types, different stages of the business. You know, some are that are I've been doing it for ten and twenty and thirty years, and and some that are still just a few years into their business. I know you 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 come to this from the from the newer end, having just started a firm a year ago, but with a very different. I think style and focus of who you're trying to work with and and the background that you come to the industry with, which was from, in a world of coaching for nonprofits for low income families, which is not what a lot of financial advisors tend to start with as their pathway and entryway into the business. So I'm I'm just I'm I'm excited to talk about this journey and and what it looks like for people that maybe come from a coaching world into an advisor world and and working with different populations and just how all of that is different. 
So, so as a as a starting point, why don't you just tell everyone about the advisory firm that you're building now, and you know that you have this firm called Just Wealth. What does Just Wealth do, and and who do you do it for? So, at Just Wealth, it's a fee only hourly financial planning practice. I work with low and moderate income families and individuals. I also have two different models. So it's hourly, but it's also retainer. And I think what's unique about my practice is that the retainer model is income-based. So it's 1.5% of income, annual income, gross, and it's divided by 12. So they pay monthly. And I have a handful of clients in the retainer model since I first started. And most of the clients that I see pay by the hour. And it's been it's been going well so far. I've seen 52 clients since I started last year. Okay. So so I have a couple of questions there. You first you mentioned working with low and moderate income families. So what what does that mean in your world? Like I, I know for there are segments of our advisor population where like, you know, I, I work with low income, less affluent people because like they only make two hundred thousand dollars a year and have three hundred thousand dollars of net worth and you know, I get them because they don't mean anybody else's minimum that's a half a million dollars. What does your clientele look like when you're talking about low and moderate income families? Half of my clients make $75,000 or less. That can be for a family or a couple with, with a child or an individual person. When it's an individual person, it's even less. So my client, my clients who, who have the lowest incomes, they're about 30 to 40,000. And that's about, I would say 10% of them. And and they're great. I love working with them. And and usually, if they're making below seventy five thousand, they're pretty much in. They're they're a good candidate for the retainer model because we t- we tend to do things where they need more more help, more handholding, working through the basics together, the foundational aspects of of the personal finance. And so, I think when I talk about low and moderate income families, it's not just in terms of income, but it's also in assets. So a wealthy person, right? It's it, we, we know it's not just about how much you're making every year, but it's also about how much assets you have. And it's not just home, but also investable assets. And so the people I'm working with, they, they don't have a lot in terms of their investable assets. And so the retainer model based on income works really well for them. So I feel like there's been a lot of discussion over the years that you, know, you just can't do financial planning for people below a, a certain income level. Because the like the math just doesn't work. They they just can't afford it. They can't afford to pay an advisor. So, like, what do we all have wrong if you're doing it for folks at these income levels? And and we have all said that that they can't afford it or they won't pay. Like, what are what are we missing? So, when I hear that argument, I hear it in two directions. So, one one of them is that it's not a sustainable business model for the financial planner. And I can talk about them a little bit because because client work is not the only thing that I do in my business. So I'll talk about other things that I do for for income for myself. But then the other side of that is, will the client pay? Would they benefit from it? Those those are two other issues. So the question of will they pay? So what's really interesting is that before I started working with low income families, people making less than maybe $40,000 for a family of two, maybe, maybe usually single women, actually, in my clientele. At that level, I used to have a pro bono link on my website. And over the last year, and I was thinking, you know, I would only focus on people with more moderate and higher incomes for their hourly and retainer. And for the low income families, it would be pro bono. 
I had that. And so link. that would be the balance. Like, I'll, that would be we'll, the balance. Yeah. we'll have some people that are a little more affluent. They can pay the ticket. That puts enough food on the table for me as an advisor. Then I'll have a pro bono section and I can help some of the segments that can't afford my services, but I want to help and just you know, we can all balance our businesses that way as we wish. So I have that link on my website. And in the last year, only two people have actually clicked on it and signed up for a free consultation. So I, I do a free 30-minute strategy session with anyone who wants to learn about my business. And they both sounded really excited after the initial conversation, but neither of them ended up signing up for the for the financial money. And so I've, I've realized something and I've learned this in my work in, in nonprofits training nonprofit professionals, but also doing the work myself as a financial coach and counselor for several years, is that even paying a nominal fee for something can make a difference in how much you value your own time and also how much they value my time. But most importantly to me, it's about how much they value their own time and making even a small investment in financial planning. And I say small, I know it's relative, right? It's so for so my clients who pay the least for the retainer, they're 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 paying, I would say, around forty to forty eight dollars a month. That, that that that's on that's the lowest amount that I'm I'm charging for retainer for for some of my clients. They're showing up at the meetings. They're coming prepared. They're coming with questions. And I almost feel like it would have been a different relationship if it was pro bono. And so now I took that pro bono link off. And I do pro bono in other ways. I I, I do volunteer at a women's center doing financial counseling. But, but I don't put it on my website anymore. And so they are paying for it. They're valuing it. And it's valuable for them. But in terms of being sustainable for someone's business, you know that, that, that's still a tricky thing for me. I think if I was only doing that, working with that segment and only providing that service to low-income people... And you know what? I should also say that low-income is relative as well. right? So, so I should say too that I, my, my business is in Boston. Okay. And so that if for anyone who so at knows least, Boston, like, low income dynamics is a little bit different than say a small town Midwest where your dollars go a little bit further than metropolitan Boston yeah, area. Exactly. I think median income here is high 60,000 for okay. a single person. For and a so, single person. Yeah, so you know, so. 70 something or 80 something yes. thousand for a fam- for a yes. family probably in the area there. Yes. And that's and and the majority of people in Boston do not earn that much. But but they're but they're making it somehow, and I saw I saw their balance sheets, I saw their cash flow statements because I, I helped them make them when I was at the nonprofit, and and still, so they're they're doing it right, and and but but they they want to be secure, they want to be stable, they they want to feel less stress, right? So so I do that too. I want to demystify the financial system for them, and part of that is I you know I mentioned the balance sheet, and I think part of why I think what I do for my clients is really helpful is that I'm not teaching them how to manage money. And I think that's another misconception that people have about people of low income that, or, or of people who are poor, right? Let's say that, or people who are in debt, that they don't know the basics, that they don't know how to do a budget. Oh, my, my clients know their budget. I would say that my clients with lower incomes know more, usually they, 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 they know exactly how much they're spending and in what category. Even before we start tracking it and, and using all the different tools to aggregate their spending, they, they have a much clearer idea and a better estimate of what they're spending compared to my clients with higher incomes. Yeah, it's something that I didn't fully appreciate until I did a couple of pieces of, of pro bono work many years ago. And just, I don't know, I feel like there, there's this 
media per se pervade perception, or at least that's where I, I feel like I see it, that you know, a lot of people struggle with their finances because they can't budget effectively and they can't get a hold of where their cash flow is going. And so it just all kind of blows through their household. And and certainly we see that as advisors. I mean, I've, you know, we've had clients who are doctors making four hundred thousand dollars a year living paycheck to paycheck and can't figure out where the money goes. So I've certainly seen that, but when the dollars really get scarce, like subsistence level scarce, people are actually pretty darn aware of where every single dollar goes. Because you have to, because you are you are you are managing every dollar going through the household, just trying to make ends meet, and and that there's a, a much better understanding of where the dollars are going. It's just figuring out how to navigate the system. Like they may know where their dollars are going, but that doesn't mean they understand all the dynamics of building credit and how four hundred one ks work, and you know, sort of the we'll call them the, the more complex dynamics of the financial system that you don't necessarily just know because you track where your cash goes. That's, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And when, you know, and, and, and it's, this is not to say that people of low income, that, that all of them are, you know, they're, they're tracking their expenses or they're living within their means. People are living outside of their means at all income levels, like you mentioned. But the difference is for low income people and moderate income people, especially nowadays with the cost of housing, the cost of education, the wage stagnation that has happened in this country over the last 20, 30 years, people, it, things are so tight for people, families, households, budgets, so tight. And, and what I see for the families that I work with and the individuals I work with is, is when cash flow isn't going to make, if their cash flow isn't balancing at the end of the month, that if they have wealth, right? So even just savings, even just savings in the bank, if they have wealth, they can get through it. They can get through it this month and maybe save up next month and build it up. But if you don't have wealth, that it, it gets tough. And that's when d- the debt comes in. And so, so wealth and income are two very, very different things. You know, when, when I work with my families, I think the value that I bring and the value that nonprofit professionals that I train bring is that we are helping people with their cash flow, understanding income, understanding credit debt, how to manage it, and ways to manage it better. Because like you said, there's very little slack. There's very little room for error. So little room. There's a lot of risk management that needs to happen for these families. But the value that we can bring for them, that professional can bring to these families is the balance sheet. Because if you don't have individual wealth or family wealth or community wealth, right? So there's also research that shows that if you're poor, if you have less, if you have less wealth, you're more likely to know other people with less wealth, right? And so it tends to let's say a community thing, right? If you come from a poor low-income community or a family, you're more likely to be friends with and be connected with other people who also don't have wealth, right? And so- We just, we, wherever we are, our natural networks, at least early on, tend to be the people who are around us in similar situations because we live in whatever neighborhood we live in, which tends to be people who are of some similar socioeconomic means. So you just end out spending your formative years with, people who are similar to you. Yes. And I w- we'll also get to talk about later, Michael, is that sometimes it's not so natural that that happens. Sometimes that is a forced policy that it's happened. And we'll talk about that. But the, but the balance sheet is, is so important because if you don't have individual wealth, if your family doesn't have wealth, if you don't, your community doesn't have wealth, then what do you need to rely on? You need to rely on the community balance sheet or the, the system, quote unquote, that people call it. Right. You, the, as a professional, I have to know what is available 
through the local housing agency, through City Hall, what resources are available for my families so that I can connect to them. Because when you literally have no other wealth accumulation or assets, you just, as you said, when 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 you get to the end of the month and and the numbers don't work, like there's just literally nothing else to go back on. If you don't have access to credit and you don't have a savings account to draw on, you don't have a home equity loan you can tap, just short-term hiccups quickly become catastrophic problems. Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 you know, there's different grant programs available for families who are close to homelessness or in transition from homelessness. There are first-time homebuyer programs. There are different financial coaching and counseling programs that provide a financial stipend as well. And And so that, that becomes part of your work, like literally just being up to speed on all these different I guess local programs, as far as I know, a lot of these are local. It's like you you would know Boston programs because that's where your clientele are. Yep. Yes, exactly. And I and I try as much as possible since the beginning of my work, I, I realize it's it's very inefficient to be looking at all these hyper local programs. And that's why the work is so tedious sometimes as a nonprofit professional, because a pro- I started this work in 2013, working at the nonprofit part time while I was still teaching. Not sure if I wanted to make the jump. I'll tell you that maybe there are a handful of programs that I relied on that were great and did a really good service for my clients that no longer exist because they ran out of funding. Usually that's the case. They run out of funding. Not that there isn't a need. And so, so I, so I feel like there's somewhere out there for someone who's list, like an enterprising entrepreneur listing. There's a business opportunity here of just l- literally coalescing all of these different local and regional programs into central places that stay updated so that people know what they what they can access so that advisors working with them know what they can access. Yes, I love that. I love Michael. You're always you're thinking about what what's the business opportunity here? No, that's great. And like I, and, I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm I'm an I'm an entrepreneur to the core like just, you know, you you see gaps and you fill them. Like that's those are business opportunities. We we need people like you. We need people like you doing that. And so there is a website called auntbertha.com. And so if anyone listening here is looking for resources nationally, you can enter your zip code and you can categorize by diff- by health, by food, by housing. You can find it. The issue is, so I, I've, it's a great start and I've used it before. But, but then what you have to do is you have to dig in to each of those individual programs because each of them have their own eligibility requirements. And so I, I can, just like any good financial planner, I have to vet the referral to make sure that it, that it fits for my client before I refer them. I need to do research on it. I need to understand is is they have first of all they're available, right? So if I'm going to refer an um, accountant or a estate planning lawyer to one of my clients, I, I have to make a connection first and say, are you taking on clients? And explain the situation and see if it's a good fit. So I do that, and more often than not, you know, either, either there's a waiting list or there's a requirement to take a financial education workshop, or they have to live in this zip code or this neighborhood, or they have to have been. Or, or make below this amount, not this amount. It's very specific. But I understand why, because there's limited funding. I'll admit this is one of the things that hit home for me that I I actually, you know, early in my advisor world, I tried to get involved in a lot of pro bono programs. You know, we did a few through our local FPA chapter and just, you know, I, I had a lot of excitement to do it. And I'll admit, like, I, I do less of them now very little of it directly because I, I just discovered in this same conversation that you're talking about, like 
you know, I can work with clients that are a little bit lower than who we usually work with. I, I still kind of, I know how to handle their problems. I know how to help them. But when you get far enough down the income and net worth scale, I just don't, I don't know these programs. I don't know what's out there. And, and I don't particularly have the time to, to learn it for, for a one-off client, unless it's just an unusual situation. I say, all right, I'm, I'm going to help this person, whatever it takes. And, you know, those come up from time to time, but I, like I was sort of thrown off that when you get far enough out of the usual realm that we work in is I'll call it like traditional financial advisors. I mean, there's still a lot of need for financial advice and, and help, but it is so different than anything that gets taught in the CFP program. Just the stuff you need to know, the resources you need to be aware of just suddenly looks very, very different. I agree. I agree. And but I but I will say a lot of times new financial planners or people who are working in nonprofits ask me, oh, you have the certified financial planner designation. Is that something you'd recommend? And I more often than not recommend it still because I feel like it's provided me the rigorous the the, the rigor and the discipline to provide a focused financial planning service to to anybody that walks in my door. So to analyze the situation before I provide any recommendations, to to analyze the data, to to really gather all the data first. That is a discipline that's important to, to know, no matter what I mean, population you work with. That core process, right, of just establishing the scope of a relationship and then gathering data and analyzing and making recommendations, presenting recommendations and implementing them and monitoring them, like that's the core steps of the planning process. Like that 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 applies no matter what. I mean, the particular things you gather data on, analyze, and recommend may be different, but like the learning the rigor of a process around planning, I get it. Still makes sense. Just, but just like then I get to the topic list of the things I learned about how to do the recommending. I'm like, oh, I'm in a different realm now of of problems that need help. But like this is not the stuff I I got taught on. So I had to do a lot of that learning on my own. And learning through clients, learning with clients. So a lot of times, some of the programs that I know now, clients have told me about them. But it's also I had to go out, have meetings, just like just like any financial planner who's who's building a referral network to, for professionals who whom to whom they can refer their clients. I that's what I had to do. I'd have these meetings. I would go to pre- make presentations to talk to other nonprofits about what we were doing, the type of service we were providing, how we could provide value to their their clients. It was all a nonprofit setting, but it's it's very it was very similar. But you're right; I had to bring in a lot of new knowledge. I, I really did. So, when you get this client that's like, you know, they have forty thousand, they make forty thousand dollars a year. You're going to charge one and a half percent of income, which is six hundred bucks a year, or about fifty dollars a month, which you'd said is, is kind of where that that lower end comes in for you. So, like, what are you doing for this client? through like month to month or through the year? I mean, are you even, are you meeting with them monthly? Are you meeting with them quarterly? Like what do you do in this kind of engagement? Absolutely. So I'm still figuring out my model, but what I just said was, you know what? It's unlimited, unlimited service. Email me, call me, we'll have video conferences. And for the handful of clients that I have now in that segment, they're, they're doing that. So we've met monthly for the first three or four months. And that's what just naturally turned out to be. And then we didn't meet. I think like there was like maybe one or two months that that they might have skipped in the middle, but they still emailed. And I'm still doing work for them outside of it. So things that I'm doing are creating their balance sheet, looking at the cash flow, do, looking at cash flow every single month, 
or every time we meet, we update the cash flow statement. I review their credit reports um, to see if there are any errors. And for at least, so there's one client in my mind that I just met with her last week. There was an there was a debt that she hadn't realized was there. She thought that her student loan consolidation had gone through and that this Perkins loan was consolidated and it turned out it wasn't. And so, yeah, so we had to deal with that. And we and we called the servicer in the middle of deployment. Oh, so like, hey, we got an error with this. Like, let's just literally call it right now. We're going to get this done right here. Nope. No homework. We're going to do it. Nope, exactly. And this is something I've learned that that just that um, there's so little slack in terms of income, but also very little slack in terms of time. They don't have time for this, right? And and so what I found is that that's and and that's how I actually describe my work with the clients I, I meet with during the strategy session. I say we can get things done during the session if, as much as you want, right? And that's and and I only see clients through video conference. I tried the in person thing, but I've actually found that I'm much more productive. And we're and together, me and the client are much more efficient with our time. We can share our screens. We can get things done in the moment, and it's more difficult to do that when you're in a new setting and here they're face to face. You're yeah. you're only meeting via video conference, so that actually becomes part of the the time efficiency for the clients that you're working with. That it's it's video meetings. They hop in. You do what you've got to do for however long it takes, and then and then you're done. It, I mean, does does that mean the meetings end out? like longer because they're flexible? Does that mean they end out shorter because you just kind of talk through the things you got to talk through and then everybody's done and they go on their way? Yeah. So what I found is meetings, I, I try to keep it to an hour. Sometimes they go a little longer, especially if we're making a phone call or we're putting being put on hold. And also, and also the clients that I'm thinking about, they don't have a laptop. One doesn't have a laptop and one does not have a reliable laptop. So this is more commonly like smartphone video conference than laptop desktop necessarily. It's a mix between laptop, tablet, or smartphone. I use Right Capital for my financial planning platform, and after the meeting, I always type up all the tasks. So I tell the, the client I'm, I'm taking notes. I'm going to put tasks for you, and sometimes I write the tasks in the middle of the session, and and that's how that that's the follow up. And I include homework for myself and homework for them. And at the beginning of every session, we, we go through that again. And you just track all that with them, like right in right in the right capital portal. Yes. yes. And I have my own I have my own set of notes as well that I keep outside. Just 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 with the other things we're learning in the moment that, that I don't want to include in, in tasks. And and then what are you using to do all the video conferencing itself? Particularly since you have to be very like smartphone and laptop and desktop friendly. I use Zoom. I found that it that it has least lag, really simple to use. My clients have enjoyed it. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So, so can you just walk us through a little bit more of, of like, just what do you do for these clients? Like, what do you do on an ongoing basis? If, if you're like taking someone on that's new, what are the first few meetings covering? What do you, what are you delving into? Sure. So I'll talk about just my, my um, what I do for typical clients throughout the income spectrum. And so it's the process is very similar for all of them. So during the strategy session, I ask people what their goals are, and that um, helps me prepare for the session and understand how to how to talk about the different goals. But then I talk about it again, and I know that some I've learned this before that when I've gone to conferences and even from your podcast, Michael, that some financial planners do a longer life planning session, or they might talk about goals for two hours or three hours. My clients, when they work with me, I want to be really cognizant of their time and they're fee sensitive. And so I 
I encourage them before the, the session to really think about their goals by, by talking about it during the strategy session. And I say, we're going to have a longer conversation about this. And I'm going to talk about it in terms of short-term, medium-term, and long-term, right? Short-term is one to five years, medium-term, five to 10, long-term, 10 plus. And I'm going to lead you to that conversation, but do some more thinking on this. And, and, and it depends. Some clients already know exactly what they want to talk about, what they want to achieve. And that's awesome too. But for others, I give them a heads up. I want you to think about this. And, and I love it when they come prepared because then we, we, we can spend a little less time on that. But it's important for me to know what they want to accomplish and when because it helps me timeline. And, and what kinds of goals do you get? I mean, I feel like in our, I don't call it our traditional advisor world, we have a lot of, you know, I want to accumulate for retirement. Maybe I've got some kids that are going off to college at some point. Like our our goals tend to be fairly long term. Like maybe a little bit of ultra short term blocking and tackling. Like you know, I'm I got to change jobs and I'm hoping to retire in thirty years. And like that's <laughs> then there's not necessarily all that much else in between. What do like what do goal conversations look like with the clientele that you're working with? Sure. So the number one goal that I hear from my clients is I want to buy my first home. Okay. Yeah. And, and so that's a that's kind of a combination of saving for down payment and getting credit score to the point that we can get a mortgage. Exactly. And if they're eligible in terms of income, it's figuring out what kind of programs they're available for in terms of first time home buyer programs. Figuring out what kind of home they want. And also understanding what the costs of home ownership really are. And so what we when we do the cash flow and try to and when we figure out what they are spending now where they're living, usually they're renting. And I should also say that most of my clients are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. I have a handful who are close to retirement in their 50s and 60s as well. But okay, most of my so clients you're, are... You're skewing lower end of the income spectrum, but younger and hopefully upwardly mobile. Exactly. Okay. And you know, we, so we do the cash flow of what they're spending now. And then we figure out, okay, so this is how much you're spending now, where you are renting. What will it look like when you are a homeowner? And we map it out. We look at we look at some homes. I ask them to bring some homes that they're interested in, and we we do the math. And I'm a homeowner myself, and so I can walk them through the different costs and what they are, and through the process. So not just in the in the home purchasing side of things, but the home ownership side, the maintenance side, the repair side, insurance, condo fees, all that stuff. And for some of my clients, all that vocabulary is very new to them, because I should also say that many of my clients. They, their their families might not have owned a home before. Okay, they, they may literally be first time homeowners yes. in their family. Yes, and and I am as well. I am a first time homeowner in my family, and so I had to learn all this. And so I'm I, I love teaching it because I my my career started as a teacher. I, I used to be a math teacher and special ed teacher, and so I, I I've I've taught workshops on this. I've you know I, I'm I'm very happy spending that time explaining these different terms because I know that my clients because they're feet sensitive. And also, sometimes they, they, they feel nervous about asking these questions that I might be the only person that they know who to go to. Because if you are a low and moderate income person, and we, and, and we haven't really talked about race very much yet in the conversation, but it, it has to do with it too. Because rates of home ownership amongst people of color in the US are at a much lower level than white people in this country. And so it's just a reality. If you've literally never owned a home and never own, known anyone who owns their own home, things that we relatively take for granted, I think about just dynamics and decisions and trade-offs of home ownership, like that really is a foreign world when you don't know anybody who's ever been able to buy their own home. Yes. Yes. 
And so I, cur- I always encourage my, my clients as well to take a first-time homebuyers course because you can learn a lot from that. And nonprofits offer it, city halls offer it, housing agencies offer it. And, and you learn about cash flow, budgeting. You learn about the inspection process, purchase and sales. They, they walk you through that process through an eight-hour course. And, and you have to take that course to be eligible for first-time homebuyer buy, home benefits and programs like down payment assistance or special mortgages. And so even if they don't qualify, I, I, I say try to see, you know, sit in to at least one of those classes because I, I think it's really helpful to take, take a course like that. And you can also take it through private means. There are, there are companies that offer those types of courses as well. So what is your vision for this from a, a business model perspective? Like, I, you know, it's an interesting thing to me that so on the one end, like you're working with clients that are much, much lower income and affluence than I think what most of us tend to work with in the advisor world. But at the end of the day, like, you know, $600 per client, you know, if someone's making $80,000 a year at one and a half percent, you're charging them $1,200 a year. Like those are lower numbers than a lot of advisory firms work with, but like, a hundred clients doing that is a hundred thousand dollars a year of revenue. Like that's not an impossibly unmanageable number to build a business around. You may not be as high income as some folks that work with affluent, very affluent individuals. Like no great surprise if you want to move up the income scale, <laughs> tends to be more earning potential, but not the reason why we all do it. As long as you can put enough food on your table. So, like, is that your vision that you want to get to a? You know, fifty or a hundred retainer clients that get to a number that's good enough that it, it makes it work for you. Do you envision going to a higher number? Do you envision other parts to your business model? Like, what are you what are you trying to build towards? As you're now a year into this, you've gone with fifty clients. I guess I'm going to assume some have been retainer based, some did hourly work. Like, where are you envisioning this goes? Michael, that's a great question, and I am still trying to figure that out. But I'll tell you where it is now. So so the client work is a third of my business. So my work actually falls in the three major categories. And we haven't talked about the other two yet. So I also am an online tutor for the BU Financial Planning Program. So I get a nice foundational income, part-time income from that. For their, uh, their online CFP program. Yes. yes. So I, okay. so, so I tutor them online through email. If cl- students are taking exams, going through the program, asking questions, technical questions. I like it because I can be a teacher. I can put my teacher app back on again. And I it forces me to review the curriculum that I haven't used in five years, really, like in a consistent basis, because it's so different from the clients that that I've seen over the last couple right. years. So keeps, keeps keeps the keeps the rest of that CFP topic list fresh when you're because teaching. it comes back. It does come back. It, it, it every once in a while it comes back, even even if you know. And and we were talking mostly about my clients of low income, but the majority of my clients are making seventy five thousand or more. The highest income clients that I have is a couple making three hundred thousand dollars in annual income. And it's the same like one and a half of one and a half percent of gross income up and down the line. So my retain my retainer now is the lowest the lowest uh, retainer fee is forty two dollars. It's around forty dollars. And the highest retainer fee is two hundred and seven. Two hundred and seventeen dollars. That's monthly. And I'm I'm working with 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 all of them, right? On a consistent basis. So so that's that. And so client work, online tutor and then I also continue to train and teach nonprofit professionals throughout Boston. And I've gone to other states to do that as well. 
So the financial and, coaching. And teaching them in what? In, oh, sorry, in, in financial coaching. Yeah, yeah. So the financial coaching and counseling world is since when I started. And, and I, I'm not saying I was at the forefront, but when I started, it, it definitely wasn't as big as it is now. And it's growing fast. Different organizations, government institutions, but also nonprofits, schools even, they're bringing more financial counselors and coaches to work with their families and their clients because they're, because they're realizing that financial literacy is so important. But I think on the flip side of that, the reason it's so important is because of those societal shifts that we're, we, we, we've been seeing and that I mentioned before, income inequality, wealth inequality is at an all-time high. So, so I, I, I want to come back to that in a moment, but I, I do want to ask just you, you, you've sort of made this implicit distinction that you are teaching those folks that are doing coaching and counseling as part of, as, as part of your work, kind of your, one of your one third pies, but you're, you're putting yourself in the, in the financial planner category. So how do you just, how do you distinguish financial planning from this financial coaching counseling work? Because I know for at least some people, the way they actually distinguish it is essentially the target clientele, like more affluent folks, it's financial planning, less affluent folks, it's it's coaching and counseling, but you're well down below median income. So we're, this isn't just an income distinction anymore. So like, how do you separate the the categories or, or view them differently? Yeah, Michael, that's a great question. This is something, this has been the driving question of my career as a financial planner. I have thought a lot about this I, and all the trainings that I do with nonprofits, with organizations, starts off with explaining the distinction. And so let's start with financial education. That's what people know. That's what people think of when they think of financial literacy, personal finance. Financial education, financial education to me is more of a workshop setting where the, the educator has, the teacher has decided what they're going to say and what they're going to teach and they go go do it. And sometimes there might be questions from the audience, but the curriculum has been defined. Then you go to financial counseling. Financial counseling is... Actually, I'm going to start with financial coaching. Financial coaching is a little bit different. Financial coaching is one-on-one. It's not a workshop setting. Usually, it's one-on-one, right? The typically. Some, some financial coaches do group financial coaching. I've never done that, but, but it can be really valuable depending on the client. Financial coaching, one-on-one, and it's client-driven. So we haven't decided what we're going to talk about. I've 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 been in financial coach trainings where financial coaches don't come with any materials to the meeting with the client, and they go, "What do you want to talk about today? What do you need?" And the biggest the the main mantra of a financial coach is that the client is creative, resourceful, and whole. They are coming up with the solutions to their questions and to their problems. And so the role of the coach is just help them help nudge them along on that journey just yeah yeah you're making really you're you're asking powerful questions you're asking them what resources do you have that can help you with this what resources do you know about that can help you with this i might know of a resource or, or i know of a resource may i provide it to you or may i share it with you that might work so you're asking permission you're asking permission all the time because the client needs to be in control and part of why they're coming to you is because they don't feel control so you're instill you're 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 all, it's like a very meta thing happening because you're the, just the, like you're you're constantly trying to instill in them a sense of their own financial control over their lives. Exactly. Exactly. Because if you're you feeling control, then you don't do the things to help yourself if you literally don't think you can help yourself in the first place. 
And it's a, it's a fine line because then we get to financial counseling. And financial counseling, the financial counselor typically has more of a technical understanding of the topics themselves. And so when I've seen financial counseling come in for low-income families, it's typically around the credit and debt. Very technical topics because a lot of rules, a lot of regulations. The credit report can be re- a, a monster to read and understand, especially for someone who has damaged credit. The collections and judgments. Interesting. So, you know, I mean, for other professions or outsiders, are you kind of the the image I think, or at least I'll speak for myself. The image I conjure up when I think of counseling is, frankly, not necessarily on the technical end. It's you know, the easiest go to is sort of a psychologist giving you counseling through whatever personal issues that you're working through. In this context, though, like counseling takes on more of a technical knowledge bent. It's 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 coaching with a little bit more like, okay, we actually got to go in depth into some of these really technical issues, like all the things you got to do to fix a very broken credit report, which is a really messy technical process. Yeah. And and actually, Michael, like, like, so it's not so different from what you just said, because I think the mindset for the financial counselor is that the client has a problem and you're here to help them fix it. And that's the same for a mental counselor, a psychiatrist. So, but but that's but that's very different from the mentality of a coach. So, so the difference between financial education, financial counselor, and financial coaching is less so on the client end and more so on the mindset and the practices of the practitioner. So, like the the, the coach, I'm here to empower my clients to have more control. The counselor, I'm I'm just kind of here to actually help you fix a problem. Like yes. Uh, and ask you, me some questions. I'll lay some knowledge on you. Yes. And usually there's a sense of urgency. Usually there's more urgency. So, you know, and the clients aren't coming in saying, hi, I, I need a financial counselor now. They don't, they don't know this terminology. Right. And so, and so I, so I show this and, and, and that's why I usually have, I have a chart up when I'm training people on this. Right. And so the fact that you're following this verbally is amazing because this is, this is technical, really complicated stuff. So you're following along really well. When the client comes in, I, I've had to wear, all three hats in one client session. You're, 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 you're moving between them. Now you can decide, oh, this whole session, I'm only going to be a financial coach. Or this whole session, I'm only going to be a financial educator now doing my workshop. And there are pl- there's a place and time for that. But when a client is coming in and they're coming with an urgent problem, for example, let's say a client is coming in with a collection notice. A collection is when a, a debt goes into default because it hasn't been paid for several months. And then you're getting sued. You're getting you're 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 getting a notice that you will be sued if you don't pay this debt or, or reconcile it in some way, and the the court date might be two days from now because they didn't get any of the other notices. Right. So this is very like I have a serious problem in the next forty eight hours. I literally don't know what to do. Like help. Right. Exactly. So at that moment, am I going to say what resources do you have to help you with this problem? I might I might start that way, but then if they say no, I'm going to put on my counselor hat and say. Have you heard of these resources? Here they are, and 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 I and I would hope I would have some ready for them, and if not, we would look through it together, and and so I'm like I'm like I'm I'm easing between coach counselor, and then I might say, do you know what a collection is? Actually, I should start with that. Do you know what this letter is? And if they don't, and usually not, or or if they've been through this before, then they definitely do, and they're teaching me what this what this letter means. Then I, I can be a financial educator and 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 do a mini lesson on what this letter means, and hopefully to calm them down. Because with so with knowledge comes power, and if you can know how to control the situation, 
and, and understand what, what the letter in front of you is telling you of what your rights are and, and what your actions need to be to reconcile it, you're more ready, able to receive the coaching or the counseling. And and then how do you distinguish financial planning and what you're doing now from these three tiers of education coaching? Oh, yeah. So, so as you can see, it has nothing to do with the client income. Because I've had clients who have high income and have had collections because they just didn't, they didn't pay attention to their credit report. The difference between all the, the three that I just described and financial planning is the, is the timeline, the time horizon. With financial planning, and this is, I'm not saying this is the, the standard or the definition. This is just how I view what I do. With financial planning, you're, you're, you're with them and you're building a long-term relationship. And you're saying it's not time limited. I, I'm, I'm saying I'm going to be with you and I want to build a long-term relationship with you as your financial planner. And I'm going to be here with you for the next decade, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, as long as you need. And we're planning with that mindset as well. Interesting. Interesting way to frame it. So the 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 coaching has a relationship dynamic, but it's it's more short term. We're going to work. We're going to try to get you to a certain point and then you'll call it graduate, maybe not the right word, but like you'll graduate, you'll get to the point, you're done. If you've got a more proximal short-term issue, financial counselors are available to work through this urgent issue. And we like to talk about, I think, financial planning as it's a relationship, it's a long-term relationship, but it sounds like that is, I mean, very literally how you're defining the difference around planning and the rest, which I guess then speaks to your business model of like, this is why we do them as ongoing monthly retainers, because this is meant to be a long-term relationship. And that's the expectation you want to set from, if you got an urgent thing, you need some help, like I'll bill you hourly, or you can go to a financial counselor. If you want an ongoing relationship support, like that's what we do here at Just Wealth. That's what the financial planning is. Exactly. And what I love about the retainer model is that my clients contact me before a big decision. Oh my gosh, that's such that that's it's huge to me. You know, so I can counsel them or coach them or actually do some financial planning with them ahead of time and look through and say, well, can you afford that house? Let's see. You know, let's see what it looks like for your balance sheet and let's see what it looks like for your cash flow and and would you get into debt again in that case if if this happened, if you bought it? I can show them the numbers. And, and that's and that's specifically a benefit that you get around retainer models as opposed to hourly models. Like we can price it similarly, but we sort of know what happens if if you're if if it's by the hour I only call you when I have a problem <laughs> that's you know worth worth the hourly charge when I'm on the retainer right the mentality just shifts like oh well damn I'm already paying you I'm getting my money's worth we're calling fog before we do anything and I love that I love that because it's it's less of a headache for them later on if they if they go through the decision and then you have to clean help them clean it up it's it it makes it my job easier and it makes their life easier. And I tell them if 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 it's no longer working for them, you know, we can pause it. We can start a new relationship later on. And I think, you know, I haven't ended a retainer relationship yet, actually, but at some but I have a few clients that might be ready to and actually use the word graduated. Some organizations use that word. Like there's actually like a 6-month or a 12-month or a 5-year graduation period. So it's not a wrong word to use, but but I I say, you know, they they might not they might be ready for to just move into the hourly. If, and 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 so I'll be I'll be honest with them about that when that happens. So share with us the the pathway about how you got to this point. Like I'm I you know you mentioned earlier you 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 started out as a math teacher, so I can kind of see the theme here, right? Like you were a math teacher, then you were doing financial coaching. Now you're doing financial planning. Like I I get the numbers theme. I can see this moving through. 
but you know, math teacher to financial counseling is certainly a massive leap. Financial counseling to financial planning is actually a huge leap. You know, I, I still don't, you know, there's a huge world I know out there of financial coaches and counselors. And as you said, it's, it's been growing lately, but I still see very little overlap between them aside from maybe organizations like AFCPE that's, that's, you know, doing a little bit to start bringing those communities together. So can you share with us just like what this pathway was, how you go from math teacher to making a leap into counseling and then a financial counselor and making a leap into coaching? Absolutely. So what should I say now is that now I'm a financial planner. I call myself a financial planner, not a financial coach, because it is it is its own discipline. And and I'm not certified as a coach. I know many talented financial coaches that take their job very seriously. So um, I want to be careful to, to to mention the distinction that I am a financial planner. But I still, but but I I, I use coaching practices in my work as well. Yes, it. Do, I agree with you. It does seem like a big jump from being a math teacher to a financial planner. But let me just say that I have been a personal finance nerd my whole life. All right. <laughs> so that, that's really the common kind of numbers and finance theme yeah. throughout. Yes. Okay. Yes. And it was born out of, I think, just a natural interest. You know, I always wanted to be the banker at Monopoly whenever I played with my sisters. But also there was a lot of financial stress in my family. And I, I wanted to understand it and I wanted to control it in some way by educating myself. And I had to read up a lot on personal finance. So my parents actually didn't have a credit card until I until I graduated grad school. And so I was in my 20s by the time they had their own credit card for the first time. So that was a thing that I had to learn about. And I think the process of having to learn about it and, 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 and process all the information that is out there, it made me realize, you know, and, and I, I actually, I shouldn't say it made me realize, it, it helped, thinking about that helps me remember what my clients might be feeling or experiencing. Because maybe they didn't, maybe they didn't have the privilege or luck to realize an innate interest in personal finance as a, at a young age. There, as an adult, when you're experiencing all this information at once, and you have to make the decision in the moment, and you have a child, or if you have the student loan bill coming at you, and and you don't know how to understand what this is telling you, it can be really, really, really stressful. And so, what I say, the way I characterize what I do is, is not I'm not helping. Well, I say, you know, I'm, I'm helpful to my clients, but I'm not saying I'm, I'm teaching them how to manage their money, but it's more about I'm clearing barriers. And one of the main barriers is time. And so what I can do is help distill the information in a way that is clear, actionable, and also trustworthy because I'm not, I don't work off commissions. I'm fee only, I'm independent, and I'll tell you if, if, if we're not a good fit. And so, and I think having that teacher background is helpful. Because like, oh, she was a teacher. You know, teachers are nice. Teachers are helpful. I'll tell you that tr- the transition emotionally from becoming a teacher to going into financial planning and financial counseling and coaching, all that, that the emotional side was one of the hardest things for me. Because at, when you're a teacher, you have a built-in trust with anyone you're working with. Because it's just the public education is an in- institution, although you know, there are, er, there are problems with it and it needs to be, you know, it needs to be changed. And yeah, but we just, we just have a fundamental trust for teachers, right? Like there's just certain profession, you know, firefighters, nurses, teachers, like they're just kind of up there on this. You meet one, you trust them. <laughs> they're all good. Just trust them. Yeah, exactly. And so I had to really change my mindset about what it meant for me to be a financial in the in financial services, I should say. And actually, I I, I remember having a friend, uh, one of my one of my really good friends, 
you know, she grew up in a low income background like me and she, she was distrusting. When, when I told her I was moving into this field, she said, Oh, so you're giving up on, on, on your, on your students and your families. And, 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 and it's, it stuck with me. Right. And, and so we're, of course, we're, we're still really good friends, but it stuck with me because, because I, I think, and I mentioned this too, in case other people listening have this, right. Because, because when you, when, when you have your community and they're used, they're, they're, they have an expectation of you in some way, and you change their mind of who you are and what you do. If I wasn't so sure that what I was doing was was going to be helpful to parents and children, that 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 working in financial services rather than education was where I could provide the most help and change and systemic change, I should say, for my for, for the families that I care about and work with, I wouldn't have gone. And if, and and but if if I wasn't sure, I might have actually. I question. I did question when she said that. I said, "Oh my gosh! Like, what am I doing? Am I just here for the money?" There's nothing wrong with that, but that's just not what she expected of me at that time. And since then, she now that she's seen how I have structured my practice to maintain the values that I've that I built while I was still a teacher, she said, "I get it now." Yeah, it was one of the biggest compliments I've ever gotten in my life. Two years ago, when I when when I uh, told her that I was thinking about starting this practice, she said, "Okay, okay." And, I, and when I told her who I want to work with, what I want to do, she said, "Okay, I get it now." Yep, you're so, still you. So did did you go to the financial counseling side and leave the teacher realm with this vision that you were eventually going to end out as a financial planner and and it was a pathway, or did you just want to leave teaching, go to financial counseling, and then later you found out there's this whole other financial planning thing that looks different than financial counseling and coaching. I found financial planning first before I went into financial counseling. I started my CFP studies while I was still teaching. So I did the online program at BU and I did that while I was teaching full-time. Last year of teaching, I was taking the program, studying for the CFP exam, working part-time for the nonprofit and teaching full-time. It was a busy year, <laughs> but I didn't have kids, right? I don't have kids. I it was just just responsible for myself. I had all the time. I don't think I'll ever have that much time again, actually, honestly, in my life. <laughs> Especially you. So, so you kind of had this mastermind plan of, I, I want to go from teaching to eventually be a financial planner. So what, what led you on this path? Like most people who decide that they want to come into financial planning, you know, they hopefully get their CFP education stuff done first. That's usually what I recommend. And then like, uh, you try to go try to get a job at an RIA or an independent broker dealer that's doing planning, or like maybe you go to a big big firm and spend a couple of years there and then decide what to do. But like most people that want to come into financial planning, like their pathway is into financial planning. You took a different pathway, knowing you wanted to get here. So like, walk us through that journey, or like what was going through your head to pick that path. So I so I had want to be I, I wanted to be a teacher for a really long time. So I think even in high school that was the first time I had the idea. I think I want to be a teacher. I, I really love because I because I I had a I was terribly shy, especially not with close friends, but in large groups. Teaching in front of uh, doing public speaking was really really hard for me. I would I remember uh, in elementary school I would run out of the room, hide in the bathroom for hours because I was so nervous <laughs> and then the teacher would have to find me and say, um, are you okay? <laughs> so it's tough. It's, it was really tough, but I've, but I noticed something that uh, around high school that 
whenever I was assigned a, a presentation, I would just shine. And, and I realized it was because of the preparation, the preparation and, and also being able to teach someone a topic that I am really confident about and that will be a value to them. Well, it just shifted my mindset of thinking, oh, okay, this, this is actually really fun. And I actually got really good. Uh, I remember reading an, uh, like a report card or something, reading it before I gave it to my parents, of course, right? That's what we do. <laughs> and the teacher wrote, you know, one of the comments, the teacher changed my life and I should find them and thank them because it changed my life. And they said, you know, Fong tends to be shy in class, but when she is in front of the classroom and is doing a presentation, she, it, she's incredible. So I, it was like, what? Like I'd never heard that before. And, and, okay, okay, this is cool. I like this. And so I was thinking of being a teacher. Luckily, the college I went to had a teacher education program. So I graduated with my teaching certification in elementary education. Doing, And I also did a lot of curriculum design, developing workshops for parents as well. So like just anything related to teaching. So teachers do a lot more than just be in the classroom, right? We're administrators, we're engagement professionals because we have to work with families. We're event planners, we're curriculum designers, we're lesson planners, we're also not just event planners with families, but day to day. I had to manage four different math sections in my last year, each at different levels. And as, as a special educator, I had to differentiate amongst different students depending on their learning profile. It, it was a lot, a lot of work. And I was having a crisis toward the end of my teaching career, thinking, what, 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 what impact am I having on, on my students? Because I'm working really, really hard, just like my other my colleagues are. But I saw year after year that the students who tend to be low income and predominantly people of color fell behind year after year. And I was in teaching uh, in the same, I taught at different school districts throughout New England, but the longest time I was in one school district was four years. And there was a shift in the school system. And I started in the elementary side, working with fifth and sixth grade. But then in the middle of my teaching career, it was a stroke of luck. It, it, the The school changed to a middle school model, so they moved me to the middle school, so I could be in the same. So I was in the same school as the students that that moved up. Oh, so I so like you, you you ended up following your students longer than you otherwise would have staying in the elementary system. Exactly, and I saw the progression, and I could maintain relationships with parents, and I saw that that divide between test scores and grades widen year after year. And I said, what is happening? They're working so hard. Their parents are focused. They're good parents, of course. You know, and I don't, I don't, I'm not saying there's such a thing as a bad parent, but they're, 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 they're focused. They're, they're invested. They're, they're, they're engaged. They're trying. They're engaged. And it's still a, a huge struggle day to day. And uh, it wasn't getting better. Actually, it was getting worse. The, the, the gap was getting worse for between white students, people of color, low-income students. And I want to say too, it's I don't think it was just a race thing. I think race is a huge part plays a huge part in it. But it's also class. The intersection of race and class is inseparable in this country because of the way economic oppression and wealth blocks have been put in place on people of color. But also there's but but there's a huge class thing, right? And so when people say and even the teachers at school were, we, we, I remember we had a staff meeting about this, and our principal at the time was a black man, and it was one of the first times that I've ever really talked about race issues in, in, in at work. And I didn't, I, I didn't know how to talk about race before I became a teacher, and I think that I think I should have learned how to. I think I, that, I think that should have been a huge part of my curriculum as a teacher because I was confronted in, with it, bam, smack in my face, my first day, and I wasn't prepared. 
And I had to learn very quickly how to get prepared. And uh, we had a discussion in the whole school. And I remember one of the teachers said, after an hour of discussion, one of the teachers said, actually, I don't know. I don't think racism is an issue. I think it's about class. I think I think it's only about class now. And it was an uncomfortable silence because there were a lot of teachers of color in the room. Not a lot, actually. I, I, there were a handful. There were more than... Usually, I am the only teacher of color in a school. But at that at that level, in the middle school, there were maybe out of 40, we had five teachers of color. And the principal was a, a man of color. So he's very comfortable talking about this. It was uncomfortable. I forget how he responded, but I, I still hear that. I still hear that, oh, it's only a class issue. But the thing is, if you don't know the financial history, then you do only think it's a class issue. You, you see people who are in po- living in poverty or people who are low income not doing so well. And there are people in poverty or low income who across across race. But when you look at the history and 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 how systems, laws, policies have been put in place that have targeted people of color, you can't deny that it's linked. So this is, this gets back to like our troubled history of the past of limiting lending programs to minority communities, which then limits home ownership and then limits transfer of wealth and just kind of propagates down like it's it's the legacy of that overhang of stuff that we did decades ago that's still with us yes absolutely decades ago centuries ago it, it's it, there's such a long history and the thing is and and even a friend of mine I, when i explained this to them they they, they this was recently and they said yeah but fong that was that was like when i explained redlining to them so what you described michael was redlining right when our government did not lend to people of color they, 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 the, the, the low interest rate, thirty-year mortgage, the subdivisions, though not subdivisions, but the, the suburban housing that was built that that house house thousands, thousands, thousands of people now, where people are continually building wealth from, was that that whole wealth building event in our nation's history was kept out people of color. I think that the number is one point two trillion dollars or 2.1 trillion dollars that was lended out only 2% of that was lent out to people of color. This was this was I'm trying to remember this was like post World War II era when when we were doing all the all the building so they just said like whatever the agency was we're going to do we're we're going to do a bunch of okay so FHA goes out and says you know we're we're going to support American home ownership we're going to do all this lending we're going to lend into certain communities and zip codes and not others and then we go back later and look and like, what do you know? 98% of the districts were white. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and people of color were forced into predatory lending schemes because they still wanted to own a home. They wanted a piece of that American dream. They lost a lot of wealth that way, or they weren't able to build wealth. And so, you know, my, so my friend said to me, Fong, that was because that happened between the thirties and the sixties, right? Until right. it was outlawed. So like this is, this is 50 to 80 years ago. Yeah. And my friend said, you know, it's, that was so long ago. And I said exactly. So imagine how much compounding interest that that need, that is. How much wealth was lost during that all those years? It it strikes me in that you know one of the challenges I've had around financial planning and and you know we talk a lot about well I was going to say diversity but lack of diversity in in financial planning. You know, you you look at. CFP board metrics and and you know I think the entire category of not white is less than ten percent and you know there there's been a lot of a discussion like how do we change diversity in financial planning so financial planners look more like the general American population which is still majority white but not ninety three percent or whatever the the percentages for CFP certificates 
And I'll admit that the question that started coming up for me recently, just looking at some of these dynamics, is that when so much of what we advise on is wealth, wealth building, home ownership, inheritances, retirement accounts, and 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 all these pieces that you know wealth is not evenly distributed racially unfortunately and so if we as financial planners have tended towards upper income upper wealth levels we we end out with clients that are not very well racially diversified and that you know we in the planning world we don't look like the average american in terms of racial diversity but i kind of worry that we do actually look like the average client we work with just sort of an awkward reality because of some of these racial challenges around wealth building history in the past. But we do kind of look like the people we work with. I think it's all that. And on another level, I also think people of color. So I I am Vietnamese American. I'm also Chinese American. I think people of color also, people of color sometimes have a sense that the system is not built for us. Or I should also say that poor people sometimes feel this too. People of color and poor white people will say that. The system was not built for us. And in turn, we are not welcomed into the system. And sometimes, explicitly, we have not been. And so with that, sometimes people of color are making an intentional choice not to become financial planners because of that long history of just exclusion, absolute exclusion. That, that, that That's all it is. I can't say I use another word for it. Well, and, and I guess as well, pieces like the experience you had with your friends that if if in your community the financial system is viewed as not something that's welcoming to your community and and quote not for us if you decide to become a financial planner you have to overcome the perception that you're betraying your community yes in some ways yes that was really tricky for me to contend with when i first started this and the reason i went into it you know what the reason i really did say, okay, this is, I'm, I'm going to make this switch is because when I realized when I started doing the CFP program, I started learning so many things that I had not known before. The way you can use financial planning to create financial security for yourself and your family. And I thought this is, this is, this is incredible information. I need to share this with others, but I also need to find a way to distill it because it's still very technical. And so, you know, how do I put my teacher hat on and translate this into people I work with who might not have the financial background that I have. And I also felt like, wow, there, there's, there's a two, it's, it, if, if, okay, so there's three things I learned, right? So I learned how powerful this information can be for the uh, individuals and families. But I also learned how powerful just knowing how the system works is and that it's not just your fault that you're not wealthy. Because there are systems in place there are tools in place that you don't had that you have you have not had access to in other generations and sometimes just still don't that you don't have access to that exist for other people so in almost in, in a way it's very powerful because it depersonalizes your situation and that's something that i talk to my clients about too i i never blame them for what situation they're in i never ever want to give them a sense that i'm judging them because i am not i understand the context of my clients lives and so a flip side of understanding the, the programs that are available for them and the resources that are available for them is I understand how hard it is to get something done when you're, when you're not in the financial mainstream. So those two things, right? And that's on the client side. But what I also realized 
is that, and this, this took a few years in, right? Because I was learning it for myself. And this is where I am now. I feel like the knowledge that I have from working in with structural issues as a teacher and also in the nonprofit, if financial, if more financial planners knew the history that we were just talking about, Michael, and that you were even describing about, about the housing, if more financial planners knew that, we could change those systems and we could make sure they don't happen again. And that, and that these divides, these racial wealth divides, and also it's not just racial wealth divides around this country People are not able to build wealth in, in a fair way. It's not just cross-racial lines, but but people of color are are more at risk of it in the past and present, but it affects everybody. It affects white people as well. If more financial planners knew this, because we know the financial system so well, how powerful it would be if we also understood the financial history and how to more comfortably talk about race. So so that's that that's that's what made me think I this this is something that that I could make a career out of. So that was what I, and I enjoy it. Drew you towards saying I I want to become a financial planner. I want to work in this space. I almost felt like I could make a bigger difference in my children's lives as a financial planner than I could be as a teacher in the classroom. Because I enjoy working with parents, I enjoy working with adults, and if I can create less financial stress for a family, that is going to cause positive ripple effects into that child's life. Because I saw the effects of what financial stress can do to a child's performance in school. And, it, and it's not even just, you know, the example people use is, oh, if, if they've had breakfast or not. But actually, financial stress can be very insidious. It can affect a child's mood. It can affect their focus. It can affect whether they not, or not they've had a good night's sleep. And children know. Children know when a, family, when, when a parent is struggling financially uh, or stressed out. And sometimes some of the best moments for me as a financial coach when I worked at the nonprofit was when a a parent would come in stressed out, pile of letters, not even opened in front of me and plop it on my my table. And I say, let's go through this together. And we make piles and we read, read what they are. And I help explain them. And I say, this is what you need to respond to now. This one we can wait next week. And they'll leave the office and we talk and, and they're calmer. They're laughing. They're smiling. And I'm like, okay. This is, this is what it's all about because you're going to go home and you're going to be a better parent to your kids. And sometimes some of my first clients were actually parents of the students that I taught. Yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. I was going to ask like where do the like where do the clients come from? How are how are clients finding you as you're building this practice in a in a very different model or at least a, a different kind of target clientele focus than most others. Right now uh, I get a lot of clients from so a third of my clients are coming from the CFP website. So uh, let's make a plan.org. I think that's the website. They're finding me through that and just just yeah. And then they're also finding me through NAPFA, National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, uh, through that database. Um, I feel like you know I know a lot of advisors that get clients through NAPFA's website. You know they've they've long had a pretty active presence publicly in driven clients. I don't know a lot who are getting clients through. CFP board and let's make a plan. Like, is that unique to like, is that something for you or like how, because of how you're listed, you think that you do hourly and most others don't, or you do retainers on there and most others don't. That has to be it, Michael. And I'm wondering also, because when I take a look at other planners that are on there, they look, they look great. You know, they, like they have similar information, but I think the main difference between me and others is that I have, there's two things. I have no minimum assets. And I don't, I, I say, I think it's commission free. So it's both commission free and no minimum assets. 
So that's a third. And then another third comes from other financial planners who are really busy or they work with clients with higher income levels. Sure, to say like, I don't actually know all of the Boston programs to help these clients, but I get that they need help. So go call Fong. She can help you. Yeah. And even and I should say too, that that the those programs have such stringent requirements that someone making $60,000 or $70,000 doesn't qualify for them either. So at that point, there there's like that donut hole, right? Like you're, 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 you make too much to be qualified for these assistance programs, but you, but you don't make enough to, to, to go for these opportunities. To, so you're to, right in the middle. Afford, just to afford the cost yeah. of buying a house in Boston, which is not an inexpensive area unless you want to go, you know, way, way, way outside the city and have horrifically long commutes to work anything near downtown. Yeah. Yeah. So so they they refer them over to me, and I'm happy to do it because I know how bad it is to to, to as a financial planner because we came in this business, we want to help people, and we don't like saying no. We don't like saying no. No, I can't help you, and I don't know who can help you. So so I'm available for them, and I'm happy to do it. And then another third comes from word of mouth, and so the workshops that I teach sometimes the nonprofit professionals or the organizations where I'm working. So I also train for profit companies as well. So not just nonprofits, they, they, they will contact me and say, oh, do you, can, can we actually meet for financial planning? So that's really fun too, because they got all the basics already from the workshop. And so we can really, we can, we can really dig in. And I feel like they're, they're, there's a compounding factor there, because if I train them, they're, they're working as a financial coach or counselor. So they'll continue to bring this information to, to their clients. And then just last week, I was in a car share. So I took an Uber. So my, my friend got the Uber, I, I joined them and I was talking about what I do, the workshop, systemic inequality, all that. And once I got out, the Uber driver said, can, can I have your card? I hope you don't mind. I was eavesdropping. <laughs> so you got, you got a positive <laughs> ROI on your yeah. Uber ride. Yeah. yeah. And so, so I had a strategy call with them today, this, this week, and not today, but this week, a few days ago, I'm meeting with them for our first session next week. <laughs> I, I, I love that story. <laughs> I, and, and so you're talking to all of them, like, you know, when you have the conversation with the Uber driver, you're you're talking about this ongoing monthly model. Like, is that what you're presenting yeah, and to so, them and talking about? Like, hey, you know, I charge one and a half percent of your income. You pay it on a monthly basis, and then I help you through all these different things, and 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 they're good with it. So it might. So the model might change, but what I say during the strategy session is everyone starts out with the on, on an hourly rate, hourly basis. So the first session is two hours. And if we need to do a follow-up, you can continue on the hourly or you can go into retainer and the retainer is so forth. And and what is your and what is your hourly fee? My hourly fee is $175 an hour. Okay. So so does that effectively mean anybody who's gonna work with you, like it's it's three hundred and fifty dollars out of the gate for that first two hour meeting? That's your like get started fee? Yes. And I and I also tell them that um there's also sometimes I have to prep depending on their finances and prep is, is at that same rate. And, I, and I'll, I'll let them know just when, when they send me their documents, I say, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to prep for this. Um, they're, they're typically fine with that because it creates, we can actually get more done during the session if we can do that, if I can prep ahead of time. And I do that because sometimes there's very little prep that I need to do, especially if someone's finances are, are more simple and they don't have a ton of financial statements for me to look over. That it's just more of a conversation and planning and looking at the situation in the moment with them during that meeting, during that first meeting. And and even for people that are down at, you know, it, income levels under seventy five, you see, you said that's still a a big chunk of your clients. Like I, I get why the one who 
spent who earns three hundred thousand dollars isn't going to blink twice at a at a three hundred and fifty dollar fee for the initial meeting. But you, are you able to hold that as you go down the income spectrum? Do you have to start modifying that when you get to your clients that are at the lower end of the income scale? So I have modified it. So mostly I don't. Usually I don't. But for my clients who are single women making less than $50,000, I did not start them at the hourly rate. I said right off the bat, we're going to do retainer. Okay. If, so if essentially we, if we work together. taking away the upfront fee commitment, they'll simply pay the ongoing. So you know, you'll still get paid over the span of a year or multiple years, but just not without that, not with that initial upfront piece. Exactly. Yes. And usually, and, and that is usually because they said, I want to work with you, but I don't, I just don't have that much right now. And, and I, and, and they're being honest with it. And I said, then, then let's start with the retainer and we'll just do that. I was going to say, like, I, I feel like that's a, still a challenge point or maybe a perceived challenge point of working with people as we come down the income scale is just, can they even afford the upfront or the ongoing cost of it? You know, like when, when you, when you get someone that says, I've got, I've got these debt problems and I'm trying to work through them. And someday I want to save enough money to have a house. And you say like, well, you know, for $350, I'll help you with that stuff. I feel like there's a perception right or wrong that the response can be like, if I had the $350, I wouldn't be calling you. And sometimes too, when I have that strategy session, there are some clients where I say, you know, I think you'd be better served going here or with this person. And sometimes I actually refer to other financial planners, some financial planners that I've actually learned about through your podcast, Michael. And I referred, I refer, I referred clients over. And sometimes I've refer, I've, I have referred clients to free programs as well. And some have, some have taken me up on it and said, "Oh yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go with them." Counseling, Instead, coaching programs out. in the community, like, "Hey, just exactly." I don't think I can help you the best, or I don't know if you can afford the way that I work with people. But here is another resource for you. You can go here, and they will, they will help you where you are. Yes, yes. You know, and sometimes I say that that really is the best thing for you. And sometimes I give people a choice. You know, I know of this program; it's free. You can do this. I, I would do this, and if we work together, it would be a retainer. You know, it's, it's up to you. You can think about it. We can talk about it again and what's best. And sometimes people go with the nonprofit or they, I might not hear from them again, but I hope I, I always hope I do because I always want to know, you know, did they get the help they needed? But sometimes they go with me then on the retainer. And, but I leave it up to them. It's their choice. Because sometimes, actually, sometimes people have gone the nonprofit route or they've gone on the pro bono route and sometimes it hasn't worked out for them. And, and they're all... And they're all working with you virtually. Like they, they get sent to your website, or you, somehow you know the someone refers them, or planner refers them, or you know Napfa or something. Let's make a plan refers them over to your website, and they're they're engaging you straight off the website to say, "I want to hire you. I want to work with you. Let's get going." And then all and then all the work's virtual. Yeah. So usually it starts with that thirty minute call. Just just we're under we're understanding each other. I have a script that I use, and that's something I learned from your podcast as well. I have a script that I've typed out after doing a lot of the. I've done so many of these. I realized I should just write it down so that I can focus on the client instead of thinking in the moment, remembering what I was. So supposed you just to say. have like a, a series of typical questions that you'll oh, ask yeah. and go through with yeah. them. Yeah, and so what I so what I've had to do too because you know because so here's what I do. So I actually personalize the conversation a little bit. But what I do is whenever a client schedules something, I use I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but is it Zapier? Yeah, Zapier. Yes. So Zapier. And with Zapier, they fill out the client form when they schedule. So it's all automated through scheduling calendar. 
And then they ha- and I have, I have questions that they have to fill out when they when they schedule. What are your goals? And I ask them and they type out some of their goals. What's your name, phone number, all that basic stuff. And from Zapier, Zapier brings it into Red Capital. Or actually, no, it brings it into Wealthbox, which is my CRM. And then it brings it into an, a note that I have in Evernote. It brings it straight into that, right? So no client information or anything. It's just like basic, what are your goals and, your, and their name? And what, and what scheduling software do you use? I use Acuity because it came with my Squarespace website. Okay. So they schedule with you. I'm just trying to think through this sort of workflow. So they, so they schedule with you a, scra- a strategy session through your website using Acuity. You've got like a, a questionnaire in Acuity that asks them some of this background information about their goals. Answers to that, then using Zapier get pushed into Wealthbox for your CRM, get pushed into Evernote. So you've got some notes before the first call comes along. Yes. In the template that I've created. Okay. Okay. And then I go in there and the template is already created with the client's name uh, or the, the, the prospect's name, the time of the meeting, the script that I have, and it has their name embedded throughout the script because it, it flowed in from Zap, from the Acuity scheduling. And I only personalize one chunk of that. And what I pers- and their goals get populated and I personalize the questions I'm going to ask them. Oh, interesting. So so some of this is sort of your, we'll call it your boilerplate, like just here's how we work and here's how we charge and here's the service that we provide, right? Like we're going to say the same thing over and over again. So we can really just write this out and script it for ourselves. And then some questions that get into, you know, they said their big issue is saving for a home. So we're going to have to ask more stuff there. Or they said their big issue is a job change. So we're going to have to ask more stuff there. So that gets more more personalized for them in this 30-minute call. Yes, absolutely. And and I and I did this to save time. I did this also to build up my confidence. All right, and I really appreciate your podcast with Diane McPhee on the, about confidence. I loved that that conversation. I struggle with self-confidence, right? And so having that helped me stick to my guns, stick to my value. I don't have the the urge to lower my rate in the moment <laughs> or to quote a lower rate. And and I also it, it gives a it has a it, it forces me to have a fair conversation with everybody, right? Whether or not they're low income. That's too. interesting. And so it keeps so, me. So so part of the part of the benefit of the script for you of how you're going to walk through your intro meeting is you actually have your fee written into your script. So you're like how you hold yourself accountable. You're not allowed to change the script. So this is what you say your fee is because you got to read it for yourself. It's like an interesting mechanism just to keep keep yourself from buckling because this is what we what we do right you you quote a fee and they're like well can't i pay a different fee and it's like where did that fee come from oh i basically just made it up because i said it's what i need to charge like it it's hard in the moment un- unless you've got a script you're not allowed to deviate from because you made that for yourself yes and i also put in because because some people will ask do you ever meet in person and i've said before i, I i've um, we talked about earlier, I used to, and, and I, I put this in the script, or I put common questions people ask just in the bottom, and I have a response that I share. And I said exactly what I said to you, you know, it, it's, I found it to be more productive when it's video conference. And so that is the only, um, that, that, that is how I meet with clients. Would that work with you? Or would that work for you? That's what I say. And so, and then I pause. I pause. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I, what I use, what I tend to do before, right, I had the script was I tend to negotiate with myself in the moment. <laughs> Would that would that be okay with you? Unless it's not, and if it's not, then we can do something else. But would it be okay with you if it is okay? Is it exactly, exactly? And I've, I've I mean I've I've heard before that women tend to do that. You know, we we question ourselves even before we the other person questions us. Like it's internalized, 
So I just, it helps me stick to my guns. Interesting. An interesting mechanism for it. And I guess, and it works even better because you're, you're literally doing it virtually. So it's not like you're sitting across them where it might feel weird if you, if they see you reading a script, like you're in front of a computer, you can totally read the script. It's right there on the screen while you look at the camera. You know, it, and it gives me more confidence to go off script sometimes too. It just, it forces me to just know, I didn't forget this. I didn't forget that. And also what it really helps is I put a motivational mantra to myself at the top of the template to remind myself to, to be confident. So I'm not going to share what it is because it's a little embarrassing, but uh, I would, <laughs> but it helps. I won't call you out on it. Just if it, if it works for you, find, find whatever words of inspiration work for exactly. you. And, words and, of inspiration. And, yep, and, and just keep them out there as a daily affirmation. Exactly. So I, I'm curious again about just where you, where you see all of this going. Do you see this as a model for others to adopt that want to just move. I hate the label, but like move further down market, maybe like move more mainstream American is a better way to put it. You, as we said earlier, like, you know, there are some advisors that make some pretty high incomes. Cause if you work with really affluent folks, the dollar amounts get, get really big, but you know, you, you just get to numbers like, a thousand dollars per client on average, you know, a few people a little below median income, a few people a little above median income charging one and a half percent of their income. And like you can, you can make what for yourself will be above the median household income in the U S like, do you, do you see this as a model for expanding financial planning to more communities or is this just your, your experiment right now and we'll see how it goes. I think it could be. I think it could be. And and sometimes I, I wonder, you know, would I ever want to expand this to have employees maybe? But when I talk to other professionals who work with low-income families as a financial coach or counselor, usually they're in, they're working in a nonprofit. They, they, when they hear about what I do, they think, oh, wow, maybe I could start my own business. And, and I say, it's possible. It's absolutely possible. You know, you might have to have a part-time, do part-time work at the same time. But if you can find part-time work that supports and builds your practice at the same time, that's that would be incredible. Because because when I do these trainings, I'm learning so much, and it's actually it actually reinforces the value I could bring to my clients. Well, and, but, and I mean, the truth is, almost any of us. I mean, you you can you can go work with some pretty affluent folks that have a lot of dollars. Almost no one makes any money in the first few years. We're, we're all kind of scrounging with savings or part-time jobs or side hustles or, or whatever it is. Like almost no one is earning much dollars in the first year or two. Yeah, absolutely. And I've learned that from, from the podcast too. It's, and I think like we're, we're all in such silos that I, I don't, I didn't know a ton of other financial planners and so I, 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 when I was thinking of doing this, there's no way I would have charged what I charge now when I first started. Even when I started my own business, I thought these fees are incredibly high. Who would pay for this? I thought that too. And people still tell me, your fees are very reasonable. And I, I go, really? Really? I, I still feel like they're high. But then I hear from financial planners who have higher fees. No, I, this is really unique. That tells me, oh, interesting. It's all, it's all what you're used to. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, that was part of why I'd asked early on of just how do your clients react when you talk about these fees? And, you know, it sounds like the answer is a lot of them are quite fine with, it. I mean, just the nature of 
charging one and a half percent of income, right? I mean, it's it's not hard to go to anyone anywhere in the spectrum and say, in the past year, have you done something dumb with at least 2% of your income? I feel like pretty much everybody can answer yes to that. So you're like, great. I am a smart thing that's less expensive than the dumb thing you did in the past year with 2% of your income. Now, do my fees seem reasonable? Yeah, probably. And and I also put my fees really clear on my website. And so before we even have the first call, I send them an email and say, hey, thanks for scheduling. I'm looking forward to talking with you. If you hadn't have, had a chance to look, here's my services page that lists my fees and how I work with clients. So if you can, if you have time, make sure to look, to read that over before we talk. So that way you like you don't... I mean, I guess that's the other good news of of this structure is... I'm going to imagine you, you don't get a lot. You don't actually get a lot of strategy calls with prospects who push back on your fees because if they are going to push back on your fees, they just read it on your website and they don't call. Saves you time. I'm not talking to non-qualified clients. Yeah, absolutely. And I think eventually, once I eventually, I do want to put resources on there for for people as well when they get on my website to that are more pro bono or more free. Or free, I should say, not more free. They're free so that they can, you know, see what else is out there too. So, just as a as a as a free resource for people. So I, I want to put that on too. So I have to ask because someone that's coming in from you coming into financial planning from, as you said, like a a lower income background, a, a background as a person of color. Like we, frankly, in the financial planning world, have not done very well attracting women or people of color or people out uh, of lower income backgrounds, like what are we not doing or what are we doing so badly that we need to do better to improve diversity in, in, in planning? Like, is it, is it just, we're working off a bad legacy history of income inequality and some of the racial and class lines that it divides so they don't find their way into financial planning or like we still actively screwing this up in the financial planning world? Michael, that is a huge question. That's a huge question. And you're like, <laughs> you know, you know, it's a big question to be asking. Are we get so let's, let's break that. Let's break that apart a little bit. There's a story also that I want to share that I didn't share earlier when I talked about my transition into financial planning. When I went to my first networking event for financial planning, I was so incredibly nervous. I don't think networking events exist when you're a teacher. Yeah, I didn't even have business cards. And I and I found out the hard way that you're expected to have business cards. Someone said, you didn't you don't have, have business cards card to hand out a networking event? Jeez. <laughs> Someone looked at me and said, you don't have a business card? And they just walked away. <laughs> Fantastic. Welcome to our community. <laughs> So, so I walk in, so, I, so, but that was toward the end of the night, but I walk into the room and I get there, I get there early. So people are still talking, mingling before the panel and I stand by a group and I'm just like trying to just be a nondescript, but just, Oh, I, you know, I just came in here. I'm comfortable. I'm one of you. And I realize they're talking about who they work with. And as if on cue, as soon as I sit, like, you know, stand there and I have my, I, and I hear one of the financial planners say, I work with teachers mostly. Teachers are so bad with money. And everyone starts laughing and nodding in agreement. <laughs> and you're like, I'm a teacher. Yeah, yeah. But obviously but I didn't say that. <laughs> but I'm not bad with money. So I guess yeah. I don't belong here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then, then the bell rings and everyone starts dispersing. And we head to the main room. And I'm standing there like, what just happened? <laughs> it's like, 
<laughs> yeah. So that was that was my first experience, first five minutes of a networking event, my first networking event as a transitioning financial planner. So I say that all, I say that all because there are stereotypes, right, of, of certain professions, there are stereotypes of certain groups, communities, and we have to unpack those. And so we've that, and I'm, I'm now I'm talking more on the in, in interpersonal side of things. You know, the stereotypes we put on other people who don't seem like they have a lot of money, didn't grow up a lot of money, don't have a lot of wealth, and oftentimes people of color, whether or not they are low income or don't have wealth, people because of the stereotype, people will assume they don't know how to deal with money or aren't good with money because of the stereotype in this country, right? Of of people of color not having a lot of wealth and being irresponsible with it or not having the financial discipline to build wealth for themselves and their families and communities. There's there's that those outside stereotypes, but then there's there, there comes the the internalized part of that where you when you hear those stereotypes enough, you don't need those outside voices anymore to hear those stereotypes. And so I heard that. You know, I heard that teacher one and and I I tell that as a story now and it's funny. But back then it, it was it was confusing, I should say. <laughs> but now it's funny, right? But but I, I've been able to build that confidence. But if I was hearing that every day and if I was hearing that you know, it 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 would have sunk in. At some point you become convinced you can't be a financial planner because you're a teacher and teacher aren't teachers aren't good with money. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I'm saying people of color as a as a as a group, right? But but there are sh- there are literal shades in, in that group. <laughs> so I am a light skinned Asian American woman, and I have a different place in society than a dark skinned Asian American woman, than than an African American woman, than a, than a black woman, than a black man, than a white man like yourself. I am more cognizant of that now than I've ever been in my life because of being in financial planning and realizing that I am so different. I didn't th- really think about that as a teacher because my student, although my colleagues were mostly white women, my students were people of color, were students of color, m- mostly, right? Because uh, and for other for different reasons, but people but, but uh, people who live in poverty are more likely to be identified as learning disabled. And so I was a special educator. And so I was managing and working directly with those students in addition to the whole classroom. But Black and Latino people in this country are three times more likely to be in poverty. So it's like we talked about before, the class and the race issues, they're very linked. And so I, I was surrounded by people of color in, in education, right? And, and other school districts had more, pe- more teachers of color. So I would see them at conferences, things like that. But in financial planning, it, 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 was, it actually was more rare. And actually talk, talk of race, even though it wasn't, there wasn't a ton of it in school, there was, there was a lot more of it than, than in financial planning. So I felt like that was always like an undertone, but it wasn't up. In the, in the forefront, right? Like, so for me to be able to say on this, uh, with you right now that I'm a light-skinned Asian American woman, that's not something I would have said five years ago. Because I don't know if I would have had the vocabulary to say that. Because it's such a loaded thing to say. Like, so what does that mean, right? Does it just mean the skin, my skin color? Or does that mean, it, does, is there like a history? There's so much history in me identifying myself as that. But I'm not nervous about it anymore. But it took a lot of encouragement from mentors, from friends, from heart-to-hearts conversations to be at this level to be so confident in being able to say that and not all people are right and i don't think it matters what age you are but i think again my uh passion and talent for teaching in front of groups has saved me again because as i've had to train and talk to people about the financial history 
there's no way I couldn't start using that to reflect on my own history and my own place here in, in the US, I should say. Here, that, that's what I meant by here. It, it, it really freed me to really understand who I am. And so how do we draw in more more people? I, I, I don't know if it's wrong to say, like more people like you, more people not like me. Like I get it. I'm a I'm a white male who grew up in an upper middle class suburb of a metropolitan area. Like most of the financial planning world looks like me. Most of our clients look like me. Lots of different reasons, but you know the the kinds of differences you talk about. Like it's just it's so not the world I came from. Just kind of the point, but it it's so not the world I came from. Like I I I don't even know what I don't know about how we fail to be an open community for people of color and financial planning, aside from just the sort of sheerly obvious, like you walk into any financial planning meeting and clearly we're mostly white and we're mostly male. So let's break it down a little bit more. So I talked about the internalized racism before when I said, oh, there's stereotypes that are put on us, but also that that stay in my mind that I have to work against sometimes, right? less so now, but still. I have stere- there are stereotypes of Asian American women that I have to contend with, but then there there there's other forms of racism. So there's interpersonal racism, right? There's instru- that that's racism between individuals. And so if you don't understand this history, and you are coming into a conversation with me as a financial planner, and this has happened before, where I've talked to other financial services professionals, and they've said, "Wow, you work with people who are low income." That's amazing. So you help them learn how to not buy the latest iPhone. You 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 help them be responsible. That's so noble of you. And there's so there's there's two things that are happening there. There's a lot of classism, right? Because because they're not. And I've had people of color tell this to me too. Not just not just not just wealthy white people, right? It's not about that. It's when I say it's not about that. I mean it's not it. The classism is different from racism, but it's so connected. And I I, I know I keep saying that, but I say that because I don't want it to seem like only people of color are experiencing poverty in this country. And that is not, that's not true. But there is a history there that we still have not contended with. And I think even today, we are more sympathetic as a country to low-income white Americans. Because we, we, we assign to them a context Right, we assign. Oh, this the 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 traditional financial service system, you know, has been there, but it's it's failed them. But when we talk about people of color, traditionally Black people and Latinx people, we think the system has been there, but they haven't taken advantage of it because they haven't they haven't been disciplined enough to do what they could with it and to build wealth like other Americans have been able to over the last century, or over the centuries that that this country has been founded. Right, so we so we blame it on the personal rather than the than the institutional failing when it comes to people of color. Right. And and then in the planning community, we tend not to see it in the first place because it's at this point more the domain of financial coaching and counseling that's been working with these populations and less so in traditional financial planning. And so and I'm just trying to think like are are there other pathways we we can build for just promoting more connection between the financial planner community and the financial coach and counselor community? Yes, I think so. I think the history that we've been talking about today, I think that that is the missing link. I think, although I have talked to people who work with low-income 
individuals who still maintain similar biases of, you know, if they if they had more discipline or if they spent less money, they they'd be in a better financial place. But 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 usually, right, the majority of people I I, I meet and talk to who work with low-income people understand the the systemic issues. But but when I talk to financial planners who typically work and come from high higher income backgrounds and work with higher income families, they don't they're not so aware of those systemic issues. In the beginning of my career as a financial coach, I mostly came into contact with types of financial planners because they were working pro bono. They were they were volunteering to teach a workshop or they were or they wanted to volunteer to work one-on-one with our families. And sometimes those conversations were tricky because if they showed judgment or uh, a lack of an understanding about the context of our clients' lives, we couldn't put them in front of our clients. And I didn't I didn't want to collaborate with them, right? But but I I have worked with and met with wonderful financial planners who even if they don't understand the context, they they want to learn. And so they ask a lot of questions. And I'm happy to talk about it, just like I am now with you. And I recommend books they could read. I recommend articles. There, There's documentaries on this. I was going to ask, so like for anyone who's listening who just wants to understand more about this, is like, is there a particular book? Like, is there a one go-to thing that you recommend as a, as a starting point? No, oh, absolutely. So the book that I recommend to understand how our economic system has, has been shaped by race is The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap by Mirsa Broderon. And she it is an awesome book. It, it I've, I've read a lot on this topic, and this is the best book I've read that gives an overview of the racial wealth gap. And sometimes I like to say the racial wealth divide instead. And it just gives a great overview of the history. And then another book that I would recommend about understanding race and being uncomfortable talk and being comfortable talking about race is the book is So You Want to Talk About Race and the author is Ijeoma Aluo. And so I thought that was a great book as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah. For uh folks who are interested and want to delve in a little bit further, this is episode ninety seven. So kitsis.com slash ninety seven and we'll have a, a links out to a couple of these books as well for people who are interested in diving in further. So so as we kind of wrap up here i'm i'm curious just any other takeaways around like gaps we have in in improving diversity right like at at some point i understand you know well i understand understanding historical context but i still also just think about like what can we be doing now like unfortunately i can't fix crappy things we did 50 plus years ago got to understand it, but I can't change it. It's like, what can we be doing to get better today on this? Yeah. We didn't cause this, right? You and I, right? Individuals didn't cause this. Institutions caused this. Laws caused this. It it took decades, centuries for for the situation to happen because, because diversity is not, lack of diversity is not just a CFP problem. I think the, the one thing that I would urge you and, and others to really understand is that it's okay to talk about this stuff. And I think the more we talk about this stuff and the more comfortable we get talking about this, which can be really hard because I know that, that even just saying the word race or saying black, white, brown, Asian can, set, can get people's stress levels up. I think there's been research on this and it doesn't need to be that way. But it's, it's, 
been made that way because of how negatively those categories have been used throughout history. So we can take back, we can take back those terms and use them in a neutral way and use them in a way to describe what's happening without pointing fingers at anyone right now, right? But if we don't, if we, if we we can't talk about this stuff, then I think we're going to continue to exclude people of color who know the history and who feel like, like it's not for them, who feel like they wouldn't be treated fairly because their community hasn't been treated fairly and that they might not be treated fairly in a workplace setting and that their, their community or themselves might be that those stereotypes would be used against them. And also they didn't grow up with a ton of wealth, right? So the wealth stuff, the institutional stuff, that's going to take a lot of time to, to solve and to, and to fix and to repair, I should say, to repair. That's going to take generations to repair. The, and it's getting worse, actually. The, the, the wealth divide is getting worse because of laws that are in place. But I am hopeful that things can change because institutions are made by people and we can change them. And so by talking about it, by being comfortable talking about it, and on, and on the institutional side, I am all for scholarships, right? Like that's something we can do now. And I know that a lot that's happening more in the in the industry or in the profession, I should say. I started my education at, at Boston University because there was a di- scholarship for people from diverse backgrounds or who are working with diverse communities. And it was the Bob Glovsky Scholarship. And Bob has become a mentor of mine. He has started, uh, he helped start the Center uh, for Financial Planning. And they're doing a lot to increase the gender diversity, but also racial diversity in the profession. And we'll see if, if their fruits come out of it, but, but there's a huge push to do that now. And so that's something, right? So, so if, we, if we can recognize the inequalities at all levels, institutional, interpersonal, internalized, we can tackle each of them in different ways. And having resources is one of those ways, right? And so I, I don't know if I would have started the CFP program without that investment in me. And also it was, the, it, I think it hit it at multiple levels because it wasn't just the, those, those resources financially, but knowing that someone as established as, as Bob in the field believed in me and felt like I could do this was huge. And, and it built confidence in me that I, 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 I don't know if I would have started off the way I did and, 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 and to be where I am now without that. And that leads me to the next thing with, with mentoring. Another mentor of mine that I want to call out is Dan Kandora. He's been an amazing mentor of mine. He worked with me while I was still working at the nonprofit. And I started doing an apprenticeship with him, meeting with him once a month, learning how to work with clients in a more uh, financial planning framework. And I, I did it at the time because, because more and more of my clients at the nonprofit were coming to me and saying, I, we want help with retirement. They, they skewed on the older end. Like there, there, was a, there was a population that skewed on the older end at a certain, in a certain city just because of the program we were partnering with at the time. And I, I, had a, I had a blind spot at the time. And I started working with Dan and I sat with him with sat with him during his client sessions. We would talk through cases together. I would bring client situations and questions from my other work into meetings with him, and he went through them with me. And he gave me the confidence to realize this is not so different. The knowledge that I have here 
in the other areas of my life and my personal experiences are transferable to this industry. And I think sometimes in my life, I haven't always felt that connection that what I experienced growing up, the financial stress and what I care about outside of my work as a financial planner always made sense to bring into my job. And that, that, that basically, I didn't know if I could be myself. And no matter what someone's history is, I think I think we all kind of feel that some sometimes. You know, is this is this for me? I I, I remember hearing you, Michael, your own story. Yeah, you know yeah. The, the the you know I'm a human being. Do I fit in here? I th- I think is is fairly is fairly universal. That that's you know we all have that n- need or desire to feel like we belong. Yeah, yeah, and the messages are so powerful, pushing me against what what I'm doing now. Right, that I think it's 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 the power of the relationships that I've built and and my friends, another friend that I've had, uh, Vera Kelsey Watts, who is an XYPN member. She has been awesome to me. We actually you, we met at a nonprofit years ago, and we re-met at a NAPFA study group. And I said, Vera, what are you doing here? She said, Fine, <laughs> what are you doing here? And we hadn't talked in a few years, and we had both transitioned into financial planning, but we worked with similar populations. She also works with moderate income people. She has a different model. She has those assets in her management, but I'm learning. I learn. I learn a lot from her too. I bring questions to her. You know, they've all helped me realize that th- this. This is. This is you. You can do this. That that's basically what it is. So, so resources, more scholarships for people of color, right, or for other groups that that we want to bring in because there is a financial barrier, and then also direct mentorship. And I think having those organic relationships is really helpful, right? Cuz cuz I've met other mentors and, and I'm sure they're they're excellent mentors for other people, but just sometimes you don't just don't click with some people. But I, I met a lot of people out there. I mentioned Steve, Dan, Bob, Vera, I'm forgetting someone. Carolyn Toman, who is a director of BU financial planning program. She's been amazing. Really helped me foster the educator side in the registered programs kind of track that I'm I'm going down as well. You you I, I think I think it's even more important for people of color to build that kind of community around them. Because of all the external messaging saying that this is this might not be the career for us, because it's just it, there, there's because the there the majority of our people, Michael. Uh, when I say people, I mean other financial planners. We're working as you know investment, but we're working in investments. We're working with as wealth managers, and we've already talked about that. There's a wealth divide, and so you're more likely going to work with people who are white. It's it's a it's a cycle, and and I think there are different solutions that are needed for for each part of why there is an ex- exclusion, right? There's exclusion, but there's also people of color not wanting to go in. So it's a it's a two way street, right? So people of color do have agency in this situation because oftentimes when I hear the diversity issue, I hear, oh, we're not the financial planning profession isn't being inclusive enough. No, but actually, financial people of color are also choosing whether or not this is the right profession for them. It's not just because they don't know about it. They they might know about it and they've decided, mm, no, I'm, I'd rather do this this other thing or stay out of it or stay out of finances altogether, which is a shame because financial services is such an interesting field. It's a growing field. There's so many opportunities for people to, to run their own business or join a small business. It, it's just, there's just so many opportunities here, especially on the technology side. So, so as we wrap up, you know, this is a podcast around success and you know we all build businesses and and kind of the own our own vision of what we want success to to look like and so i'm i'm, I'm just wondering because as you go down this road and you have this interesting blend of 
you know, keeping a foot in the, the counseling coaching world and keeping a foot in the planning world and keeping a foot in the educator world, you know, like all these different ways that that finance nerd and teacher <laughs> intersect for you. I, I'm just wondering, like, as you look forward from here, how how do you define success for yourself? I define success through impact. And I think at, at this point in my life, I want to create change on a systemic level. And I know that sometimes that might take me away from working with individuals. But when I say that I want to be, I remember when I started teaching, I remember telling myself, I want to be the best teacher I can possible for my, for my students. And, I, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be the best teacher possible. And I started realizing that it, it might, it might mean that I have to leave the classroom to do that. And so I'm realizing that, that, that now too, as a financial planner, that making that systemic change to change those institutions that we talk about, to change the internalized messaging requires that sometimes I have to step out of those client meetings and to speak to more groups, just to write. And that's something I have to, I have to do. Like I haven't really written much for, for an audience. That's something I want to do. To, to clarify my thinking and to allow other people to to read it and to comment on it because I need to I need to grow in that way I need people to 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 say well what about this what about this to question with me because having conversations like this ha, ha, has what led to this kind of understanding right to for pe- to people for people to push back to what I'm saying and and I've had people of color push back white people push back and that helps me grow but it also helps me clarify what change needs to happen for myself and so I can tell and help guide other people to to focus their energy too. So that's what that's what success means to me. Yeah. What kind of impact I can make. We'll have to have you back on a couple of years from now, see where this evolves and where the where the pathway takes you and, and do an interesting retrospective. Like what have the past five years been like for you in 2023 since we did that last podcast? Thank you, Michael. And I want also want to say thank you for building a community of financial planners helping emphasize for us that it's not about being competitive with one another, but about helping each other grow. I've learned so much, you know, all the different things that I'm talking about in my practice. I, a few, many of those things I learned from reading you, reading people from your podcast, looking, looking deeper into other people's practices and getting inspiration from that. Because, because I, because like you said, what I am doing in the population I'm working with is so it's, it's unique for, for our certification right now. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us, Fong, and just and sharing the story of what you're working on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this time. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.